Seminar with Adam Arn. Welcome to 3PNR. I'm your host, Adam R. And joining me again is Julie Ann Fiddler from the True Crime Blogger. Uh, Julie, your, your blog, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to put that in description so people know. what What's the platform? They can just find it using Google, right? Yeah, it's on Medium. Um, but if you just put in the True Crime Times, uh, it's the first thing that pops up on Google. Got it. Got it. Julie, let's start out with, uh, we were talking in, in po- or pre-podcast here about the uh the Delphi. Give me information on what you know so far. Well, there's there's been a lot going on. A lot of it's kind of been overshadowed by the uh, Idaho student murders. Um, but, uh, you know, just to recap, uh, 2016, 2017, excuse me, the girls, um, uh, Abby and Libby were um, out walking along the Monon High Bridge in Delphi, Indiana, which is a uh, it's like a, a nature trail, essentially a very dangerous nature trail. But um, anyway, they, you know, it was a unusually warm day. It was the day before Valentine's day and they just wanted to get out and enjoy the weather. And when it came time to pick them up um, in the afternoon, they didn't show up. And then the next morning they were uh, found murdered. So just to give, you know, some background for people who might not be familiar Um, so, you know, for, for five years, um, there, it it seemed like the case was going cold. They would get a lead and the lead would lead to nowhere. And there was confusion because there were two separate, um, composite sketches that were given to the media. Um, but in the fall, thank God, they actually arrested someone, uh, that they believe, uh, well, either committed the murders or as part of the murders. I don't think they're uh, quite sure that he did it on his own. Um, but the, the crazy thing about this person that they arrested is that he was on the map from pretty much day one. And he actually spoke to the police uh, like right after it happened and told them he was on the bridge that day. You know, he was there at the same time. Uh, he told them what he was wearing, which, uh, as it turned out, uh, resembled what um, uh, the bridge guy. Uh, there was some Snapchat video of this man following the girls. And what he described to the police was what was seen in this video. And then for five years, you know, he just fell off the map. Supposedly, it was because of an FBI uh, error. Um, but they finally arrested him. His name is Richard Allen. He's 50 years old. Um, he was just a, uh, an employee at the local CVS in town. And mm-hmm. so people were familiar with him. Um, certainly not somebody that they ever thought would be involved in something like this. And actually, um, I forget if it was Abby or, or Libby's family when they went to, uh, develop photos for the memorial service. He was the one who actually waited on the family and developed the photos. And then when he gave the photos to them, when they came to pick them up, he said, there's no charge. And so like everybody else, they just thought he was this nice, normal guy. And here, you know, he's, this is the person that they think 
you know, killed their family member. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How old, are these, how old are these girls at this time? They're young, right? 20s? Oh, no, they were uh, teenagers. Libby Sherman was 14 and Abby Williams was 13. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, you know, any information that's, uh, you know, been put out there, most of it has come from, you know, leaks from people who were part of the search or, you know, people who found the bodies. Um, and so there's, you know, there's, there's all sorts of rumors out there. Not all of them have been confirmed, but, um, you know, one of the things that has been circulating was that, uh, well, they said from the very beginning, law enforcement said that um, the killer or killers uh, took uh, like a, sort of like a, a prize from them, you know, something to, uh, I know that's not the word I'm looking for, but something, you know, to like remember the crime. Like a trophy. And, yeah. So uh, what's been circulating was that he took uh, a pair of panties belonging to one of the girls um, and one of their cell phones. Were those items recovered that you know of? Um, well, the one cell phone was recovered and that's, um, that's where they actually got the, uh, the Snapchat video from ah. they were taking, you know, pictures of each other. It was a nice day and posting them on Snapchat and stuff. And thank God uh, they had the wherewithal to actually video this guy who was following them. And that without that, I don't know. I don't know if they ever would have uh, found the guy. Right. So it's starting to sound like that's the evidence that, that linked them. Right. Like Libby filmed this man following them and you know at one point he says guys down the hill and um we now know that they found a bullet casing near the bodies that had not it hadn't uh hadn't been fired but had been excuse me circulated through a gun that was um traced back to richard allen it's his gun um so you know it, it hasn't been confirmed but the overall assumption is you know he had to have used a gun to maybe scare them right into going down the hill but we know that they were not shot that's not how they were were killed right so because it, it, in the crime itself i mean it, it did it didn't did it seem premeditated or it was it that you know opportunity knocked for this guy because this there's no way he sees two young girls and mm-hmm. it decides in that moment, I'm going to, I'm going to murder these two. I'm going to do something to them and I'm going to murder them. Right. He, it's, well, it, 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 it's, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that it's the, the situation is confusing um, because now uh, before the arrest, they arrested a man named, um, well, he had this account on Instagram. It was a fake account and it was uh, the Anthony shots account. And um, the account featured photos from it, it. It just looked like an attractive teenage boy. Right. Um, but it turned out that the photos actually belonged to uh, a professional model and not associated with the account at all. Hmm. Um, and the person behind that account uh, has been he's currently sitting in jail because um, they found like child pornography and, and such on his devices 
And he was using that account um, so that he could meet underage girls. Uh, his name is Anthony Klein. Um, and he was meeting underage girls. They assume meeting underage girls, getting videos, getting photos and such. And they do know that he was not the only person who had access to the account, not the only person who had the password. Supposedly his father had it. And they know that uh, this the Anthony Klein or whoever's, be, you know, they think it's him. But if there might have been somebody else behind the account, but that account interacted with one of the girls. I see. And so, yeah. And so now I don't know that there's been anything else released about that, but um, you know, the, the rumor is that it was some sort of sex ring and this was um, some sort of botched kidnapping and how, uh, you know, this guy has anything to do with like how they're connected, how they met, how they know each other. Um, that's what, you know, that's like the big question right now is it how sounds involved to me, was that? Yeah, it sounds to me like an unfortunate coincidence because this guy that killed him, mm-hmm. it can't be that this is his first time killing, right? Because the likelihood he's walking on a trail, sees two young girls, decides in that moment, I'm going to do this. It doesn't sound right. It sounds to me like he's done this before. Now, whether or not he confesses that or they discover that, that's, you know, question mark. But it's just, you know, not every human being just, there's a, I I forget the name, uh, the inside man, the show is watching and and the guy in the show says, um, you know, everyone's capable of murder just depends on, you know, the situation. Right. Sure. And so right. this guy obviously was behaving like a predator, following them. The mm-hmm. girls clearly felt uncomfortable if they recorded him. And, yeah, it, it, he had to have had experience before to even take that next step. Otherwise, right. if it's because um, so his demeanor and some of the video I looked at, he didn't seem to me to be like overly concerned or shocked. It's it's almost like a hum got. Right. And you see yeah, that it's, that's exhibited it's, on serial killers, too. They have that same display in their face. Like, all right, they got me. So, yeah. And it's 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 I think it's safe to assume that um, the girls were specifically targeted and that it was a planned attack because there were numerous um, witnesses in the on the bridge that day, uh, including other you know young girls who spotted him and described him to the police. And so why didn't he, you know, why didn't he go after them? Why did he follow Abby and Libby? Right. You know, so it, it, I think it's unlikely that it was just random. Right. Yeah. I mean, he probably like any other predator, whether it be a predator of the wild or a predator amongst humans, they, they, they choose their prey by weaknesses, right? They, they like uh, when lions approach a herd, they look for the weaker one, the slower one, the one that's easier to capture. And this, that's why, you know, they call human beings predators. They behave like that. They target the weaker ones, you know? Um, So it's tough. You know, I started digging into that uh, John Benet Ramsey case. Uh, You know, I'm going to be honest when I was a kid and I heard about it and the way that they, they put it in the media, Everyone mm-hmm. thought the parents. Everyone thought the parents. It was very right. obvious, like uh, the, where they lived. There was no crime there. Uh, these people had money. And so the motivation for being the parents uh, later on, as I discovered, didn't seem likely. Now, right. uh, I discover in, in what I'm reading that the Boulder police uh, 
they're not cooperating. They're not handing over the DNA. And I think the reason is, is because there's so little of it and they don't want an outside source to contaminate it or use up all, all of it. But the person that, that's um, wanting to do the DNA testing, she seems to be really with her name's Cece. Like she seems mm-hmm. to be on top of things. She's uh she's helped bring in a, a, a serial killer. That's that was at large for like 40 plus years. And they brought him in in 2018 based on some DNA res- uh, results that she got. And she did it using like an ans- uh, ancestry thing, um, uh, I believe, to kind of rule out people that in that DNA strand, et cetera. Point I make yeah. is, why are they not taking these measures? You know, uh, there's a, uh, yeah. a, a detective, well, Lou, Lou Smith, and he mm-hmm. believed it was an intruder. And and the way he looked at the investigation, it spoke intruder. You know, guarantee, like there was a way to get in the house and commit this crime. And even at that note, seemed like a last minute, like. De- uh, act of desperation to try to kind of cover tracks or, or develop some time for him to run. Like, I think this guy had it in his mind. If I write this letter for, uh, for the family to see, and it's, it's, you know, a ransom, it's going to buy me time to get the hell out of here. Right. So I think this guy right. was probably like a drifter as an intruder. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I was just, uh, just reading something about the John Benet case and how um, not only uh, will the investigators not turn over the DNA? But um, even the governor has been uh, has been approached about trying to force them to turn over the DNA, and they haven't responded at all. And it's it's really weird. You would think, I don't know. To me, it seems like there might be some ego involved. Oh yeah, definitely. Because um, clearly, the the investigation, from what I read about and what I come to learn. Is that community, you know, again, not high crime. So mm-hmm. the detectives on scene weren't, you know, they're not acclimated to homicide. And right. so I, it was very clumsy the way it was approached. You know, a lot, I hate to say this, but in the 90s uh, mm-hmm. and not everywhere, obviously some homicide departments in certain cities were equipped and, you know, because they had an expectation there's going to be a lot of homicide. But in the 90s, in some of these places, uh, homicide was, it was like a lot of it was just botched. It was clumsy. And mm-hmm. this is a prime example of that like the crime scene, the father discovers the body because one of the cops said, why don't you go look around? You know what I mean? Like if it's a yeah. crime scene, there's a, and someone's missing, we don't know it's a murder this time, but it's a, there's a missing young six year old. You're not sending the parents to search the house. You're calling a team in. You're going to evaluate the home from, from top to bottom and conduct uh, a crime scene, you know, or right. at, least, at the very, uh, a proper investigation. And then so the father finds her body, picks her up because, you know, at first didn't realize she was dead, carries her upstairs. And because the video. So here's the funny part. Years ago, when I first learned about this, I was a I was a teen. And I remember seeing the images on TV. It's her body. It's covered by something. It's down where she was initially found dead by the father. I found out that they the police put her back down there. Right. To conduct. Mm -hmm. At that point, everything's contaminated. Right. Everything's contaminated. And of course they're blaming the parents. And here's the other kicker. Um, it's even now people are still speculating the father. Now this, the, the father literally harassed state police, local police, government. He's never stopped the fight. People that are right. guilty, you, they might put that act on for a year or two, but I promise after that year or two, they're, they're not concerned with it anymore. This guy's not stopping. Yeah. And, you know, the father still says that, you know, even though technically they, you know, the family's been exonerated, um, those detectives still think he had something to do with it all these years later. And that's part of why they don't want to cooperate with the DNA. 
Yeah, it's scary because this, you know, this detective, um, he's from another jurisdiction, steps in. His name's Lou Smith. Uh, mm-hmm. He passed away back in 2010, I believe. I think 2010. Yeah, and his daughter is, has uh, taken up where he left off, correct? Oh, I'm not sure. I, that's To me, that's great to hear because this should not be let. When you have DNA and you have modern technology that's that's hitting in a high percentile for you know discovering a murderer, you'd think this would be at the, at the, the very top of the stack for a local police, FBI, everyone involved. The CBI, right? The Colorado Bureau of Investigation. These guys would all collaborate. Say, Look. If we could sit down and come to a consensus and say this this seems viable, it's working. I don't see what the problem is. You know, it's right. I personally believe if a murder goes unsolved for let's say six months, uh, mm-hmm. maybe it's time to bring in FBI and specialists and et cetera. Right? Maybe it's time to you know set your ego aside. You didn't get it. You know, we'll keep you in a loop, but let's get the let's get the big dogs in. That's right. the attitude I would have anyway. Right, and it's you know it's just really sad that. Um John Bonet's uh, mom, Patsy Ramsey, she died before they could, you know, before they could clear her. So this poor woman went to her grave with, you know, investigators in the whole world thinking she had something to do with it. And I just think, you know, at this point, uh, I don't know. I just don't understand, like, what are they afraid of? You would think such a big case for such a small police department, it would be a win for them to finally get this solved. Yeah, you know, and the father, he's surrounded by tragedy. I, I recently discovered that John Bonet had a, an older sister that died in 1992 in a car accident, like a half-sister. Yeah. So, I mean, there was just tragedy and tragedy in this guy's life. And so you could see, I was watching his interview, and I'm pretty good about reading people's faces. Like, I do my best. And mm-hmm. y- you could see there's he's worn. He's worn down yeah. by this. He's he's never stopped thinking about it. He's never stopped pursuing it. And, you know, like this this Detective Lou Schmidt, he comes aboard, and he the first thing he says is, like, something's wrong here. Like, you know, he examined it and says it looks like an intruder, and he was basically shunned. Like, they shot his yeah. theories down. And so when I hear that, it tells me that someone's out there with a very singular mindset on what happened, and they're not willing to bend what it is they're thinking. And that's not that's not how you should investigate. That's not scientific. It's not, it's not the work of a true detective, right? You, you really want to examine all possibilities. Yeah, it says here, Lou. Wow. They brought him on as a, for a, a special task force. They brought, as saying, like brought Lou in as a, what a special, you know, murder task force. And when you hear task force, you think multiple members, right? People with expertise. And right. All I saw was his name and then the locals. And then I find out the same detectives that were working the case back then are still currently the detectives now. Right. So, And what exactly are they doing if they have DNA? And, you know, we don't know how much of it. Maybe it's corroded. We don't know. But, you know, it's like, well, what what are they doing to actively investigate the case? And if they're still actively investigating, why not at least try this? I, you would think, you know, this isn't, this isn't like, um, like a, a rare occurrence either, because I'd spoken with Norm Pardo about the OJ case. Um, right. and I was enlightened about a lot of stuff I didn't know. Um, mm-hmm. example, Glenn Rogers is in the mix here. This is a serial killer who's in prison for murdering a lot of people. In fact, right. OJ and Nicole, uh, however they came to know him, they didn't know him as, as, as Glenn Rogers. They knew him as a name of a man he murdered and took his identity. Mm-hmm. On top of that, I, I'm almost, it, it's it's mind-boggling because um, 
Ron Goldman was a pretty big guy. He was athletic, right? Uh, right. He had martial arts in his background. And you could see on his body, he put a fight up. He fought yeah. his his assailant. And OJ, mm-hmm. what do he have? He had a cut on his finger. That's it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so, and then it was also said that Glenn Rogers, the next day he was supposed to be a painter, didn't go to work because he wasn't feeling well, which sounds like he had a, you know, a big fight. And if hypothetically speaking, if OJ killed Nicole and Ron, they would find a little bit more than just some trace blood. That's a lot, an enormous amount of blood would be on him, his car. There'd be just, it would not be small traces. So even in that case, I think OJ went to confront Nicole, right? Because there was an, an alleged drug issue and his kids are around. This guy, Glenn, under whatever name he's using at the time, joins him. And, and so, uh, Ron's unexpected. He you, he had glasses to bring to Nicole, which was, in my opinion, uh, an excuse to see her. And so mm-hmm. as they're approaching, Ron's there. OJ and Ron get into a dispute. And Ron was said to pull out a small pocket knife, and it clipped OJ's finger, and OJ just left. And this guy, Glenn, picked up the action. And so mm-hmm. clearly Nicole comes out hearing the commotion. I, I would imagine Ron's down and out, you know, and he turned his attention to her. Now, why didn't this now come out? Why, why didn't investigators approach this and say, well, well why well, OJ tell us? Cause OJ really could have said, you know, um, this guy did it, et cetera, et cetera. But that was the fear of going to prison. OJ didn't want to go to prison period. Right. So that the face you saw him on was not the face of a guilty murderer, but it was uh, someone who was guilty because of association. And he, and that incident happened because of him. Right. So, because mm-hmm. I never thought OJ, even then, I was like, there's no way this guy's a killer, man. You know what I mean? And uh, I don't know. I'm pretty sold. I'm pretty sold on that. <laughs> but yeah, baby, when you listen to the details of this, when you all the information aside, when you hear about Ron's defensive wounds, whoever he fought took an ass whipping. They weren't, they didn't, they didn't get away with just clean killing. This, this guy, he gave it to somebody. So they would have bruising. They would have been had abrasions on their skin. It, it would have been OJ if he did it. If he was the one to kill Ron, guaranteed he would not just have a cut on the finger. He'd have like a black eye, a fat lip. This guy fought. This guy fought hard. Uh, and then Nicole came, comes out. And so when you consider when you look at this guy Glenn Rogers and some of the other victims, he killed outside of him washing the body. Killed her pretty similarly. Like like you could see it was similar, right? So. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying this is just my opinion on it, but when I hear this, this is what comes to my mind. And so what troubles me more about any of that is that the LAPD that looked into this, the detectives that looked into this, um, when you do your work on a, a, a homicide, you should not, or it's OJ, period. You can't have a singular mindset. You have to rule out everything. And I think they would have discovered, well, here's this guy under an assumed name, which we later find out is Glenn Rogers, who's a serial killer and is actually in a photo of one of them and has been witnessed by other people. I'll tell you who the real guilty party is with that scenario. Whoever introduced OJ to that man and Nicole to that man, that's the guilty party because they didn't, that someone somewhere somehow had some idea who this guy was somehow, because you know, if you listen to the restaurant, there was another guy with Nicole's information driving around with a suppressed weapon well, I have to admit, uh, I, you know, it, it happened when I was in high school 
and I watched it, but I have not done a whole lot of looking into it since then. I have to be, oh, <laughs> I have tell to you. tell you, it's something I would have to really investigate because it's, it just, uh, I haven't really paid much attention to it since it happened. Yeah. I invite you to look into that. It, I thought the same thing. I'm like, yeah, OJ did this. He's going to get away with it. I thought that for right. years until I've, I've read more information. And, and then here's the kicker. When you go to look at his, the files from that, it should be public record. You would imagine, right? You would think, yeah. It's, it's sealed. And then there's shit that's redacted. <laughs> like, this is, you know, equivalent to the JFK mystery when it comes to sealed information or redacted information. Why is that? And I think largely in part, like we discussed earlier, it's a black guy in law enforcement to, mm-hmm. to, to let us a, a known serial killer. Keep this in mind. Had they did their job and investigated this other guy, this guy, Glenn, would not have gone on to kill the amount of people he killed thereafter. Because he killed a lot of people after that. And they eventually right. caught him. Eventually they caught him. It was on, uh, uh, I believe you could see the video of a reporter with a camera at the moment they captured this guy. He was out killing. You know, So had they done their due diligence and, and responsibly approached that case, not, all of those murders he was responsible for non-existent today. They would have figured out something was wrong. If they would have approached him in that same timeline... Uh, if OJ was more forthright, let's be honest. If if OJ was more forthright and said, hey, all right, I was with this guy. Here's what happened. They probably would have went to this guy, saw the amount of bruising and, and, and the condition of him at that moment and said, holy shit, this guy was in a massive altercation. And then that case would have took a different turn. So it's not just the police that are guilty. OJ's guilty, too, because you really, again, had you been forthcoming? Who knows? Who knows? Right. Well, it'll be... Interesting to see if the person that was arrested for the Idaho murders has any other uh, victims on his body count, Um, because this guy killed four people the very first time he committed this type of crime. That really doesn't make a lot of sense to me or a lot of people. Yeah, I agree with you. You don't kill four people. Again, that's even that other guy. Most people don't just kill four people because, hey, it's Friday, I'm bored. It's in right. it's, it's in their DNA. It's in their nature. And so, yeah, that's bizarre. Uh, this happened in a sorority, right? Yeah. Uh, well, a, a house. Yeah, right. sorority house. But the it's not beyond the imagination that somebody would kill multiple people their first time um, you know, it's happened before. If you look at uh, BTK, for example, uh, Dennis Rader, he killed multiple people the first time, you know, he committed a murder. But it's pretty, uh, it's pretty rare that somebody the first time they're going to go out and do this, they're going to do, you know, they're going to kill four people at once. And so either he's got, you know, a, a history that the DNA hasn't discovered yet, or this guy was on his way to becoming a serial killer for sure. Yeah. So I'd spoke to Lenny DePaul on this show. Um, he's a, a former U S Marshal, former secret service was on the show Manhunters, And you know, he was, uh, they were, they were using him for counsel, right. For advice. Right. And even he was like this, this, there's no way this it's this guy's first time. Right. Because it, he cleaned up pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there was nothing sloppy done. He had, in other words, it's premeditated. The guy knew he was going to do it. Yeah. yeah. He approached that with every intention of that being the case. What troubles me, uh, and you know, maybe this is my own mind and my imagination running away, but other people were in that house, 
right? Mm-hmm. Th- th- there was yeah. people that survived. Somebody, I don't know, how do you kill someone? One of them had to scream. One of them had to make noise. I, I would have think. Well, anyway. yeah, I mean, there's been a, a whole flood of information that's come out just in the past few days um, showing that uh, one of the surviving roommates, uh, she, it was after 4 a.m. and she was in her room and she heard uh, what she thought was somebody say there's someone in the house. And she looked out her door and didn't see anything. She went back in a room a little while later. She heard what sounded like um, one of the victims, one of the the girls, um, crying and playing with her dog um, in one of the bedrooms upstairs and opened her door again, nothing. And then she heard what sounded like a male voice say, don't worry, I'm here to help you. And the third time she opened her door, this guy wearing all black with a mask, you know, you couldn't see anything but his eyes. Uh, He goes walking by her, just casually walks by her and leaves via the uh, sliding doors. And she just, well, well, we'll get into this, but she she said she froze. And then she went back in her room and locked herself in her room. And then, but then the 911 call, excuse me, doesn't come in until hours later. And so this poor girl has been getting so much uh, grief from people who are trying to say that she had something to do with it. The police have cleared her. Um, They said it was just, you know, there really is no explanation for it. Probably we're not going to hear much about that uh, unless it goes to trial or, you know, once if he hopefully he'll plead guilty. Supposedly he's not planning to do that. But, uh, you know, either after he pleads or after the trial, we'll hear, we'll hear more about it. But, you know, the police are saying, look, it was just uh, a shocking thing. There were so many people that were in and out of that house because of parties and there are multiple people that live there. You know, it's possible she thought somebody was playing a prank or maybe it was some sort of hazing incident. Also, we know that uh, they had been at a bar uh, earlier, so she could have been intoxicated. We don't know. But she did see this figure, described his height, which matched up with the suspect, Brian Koberger. She said, you know, the only thing other than, you know, describing what he was wearing, the only thing she could really make out about him was that he had bushy eyebrows. Eh, Brian Koberger kind of has bushy eyebrows. I mean, I, I, I think that's kind of a matter of opinion. Um, but there, there's actually a ton that's linking him back to this case. He really wasn't that smart about it. He left a bloody footprint. Uh, he left his DNA on the button of a knife sheath, and they believe that you know, the knife that went into that sheath was the murder weapon. It's a Marine K-Bar knife, um, but they haven't been able to find the murder weapon yet. So he left, you know, DNA there, and that's actually how they ended up uh, tracking him and arresting him. And his car, oh my gosh, I can't even, multiple, multiple times, um, his car was seen on surveillance um, near the residence, and not just 
the morning of the murder, but 12 times before that, uh, it, it appeared that he was stalking one or all of them um, because, you know, it was always either very late at night or very early in the morning, you know, cell phone towers and surveillance cameras were picking him up in the area. So, um, in fact, he left behind so much uh, evidence that uh, it's people are kind of making, you know, um, a suggestion that maybe he did this just to see if he could get away with it. I tell you what, <clears throat> a couple things. The girl identifies the eyebrow, so she's coherent enough to see a small detail, mm-hmm. right? So inebriation's factored out. Um, at that point, well, I, not necessarily. I right. mean, it, you know, it, well, it we, depends on on it, how inebriated she was. Right, right. She, There's a difference between having some drinks and being coherent, and then having drinks and you're non coherent. Period. But to recognize some, a small detail, especially in dark. And the guy's wearing, mm-hmm. you know, a, a basically a mask. He's dressing all black. And to, to realize the detail of the eyebrows tells me she was aware that, it, you know, she was able to see the, the details of that. I mean, if a guy's walking around my place, I don't give a shit where I am. He's wearing right. all black and a mask. That flags all day flags. Two, this guy, if if it was his first murders, he like you said, he's on his way to becoming a, a career killer. Because he was selective. He walked right by this girl, didn't touch her, just left. Mm -hmm. Uh, Either he was out of gas or he was, like you said, now talking about 12 days of he's he's watching him. He selected his targets. Like he knew before he entered that place, he knew full well who it was he was going after, what the plan was. And then the parts right just passing some girl. So definitely that's, you know, serial killers have a, a preference, right? And they all start somewhere. So I'm sure they're going to dig into this guy and find something. It can't be that he just said, again, I'm going to stab these people. Typically in, in serial murderers and, and people with that kind of behavior, it starts with animals or some odd behavior that's determined early in life. Very Well, he, uh, Brian Koberger, it's, his background is interesting. Um, he was actually studying, I believe it was criminology. Mm. Um and had studied, he was uh, in the middle of working on his PhD at the University of Washington, or excuse me, Washington State. Um, and he had received a master's degree from DeSales University in Pennsylvania, and he studied under uh, Catherine Ramsland, who is a forensic psychologist. She actually teaches there, and she's written, I want to say, 68 books, and corresponded with Dennis Rader, BTK, helped him write uh, his autobiography. Um, So this is somebody, this is why people are sort of, sort of wondering if, you know, he was just trying to see if he could get away with it, play mind games a little bit because he was studying all this. And, um, you know, his background, he had been a pretty serious heroin addict in high school. Hmm. Uh, he was very overweight and bullied and especially by girls. And then um, his senior year, his friends say he suddenly came back to school like like 100 pounds lighter and was real thin and became super aggressive and became a bully himself. Huh. So um, he does, you know, it appears that 
clearly he's he has something going on as as far as his mental health is concerned because people typically don't become heroin addicts for fun right um but we don't you know we don't know much about his his family um his one of his sisters is uh, a therapist you know a mental health counselor his other sister is a school counselor and his parents um I don't know much about his parents, but they, I mean, they seem like a nice, normal family. So, but we don't know. That's another thing that we probably won't find out until after, you know, during the trial or, or after he pleads, whichever happens first. Um, we don't know a whole lot about what went on in his house when he was growing up. So that'll be interesting to see. Yeah. But let alone that he's being so prior to his, his transformation, he's, he's heavy guy. He's, he's being bullied, you know, uh, you could have a, perf- a a very profound effect from being abused by peers, right? Because right, right. early on in life, one of the bigger things that that you know young people come to terms with is being accepted by their peers and how they're mm-hmm. viewed by their peers. And even if it's not true, this has been shown that even if a, uh, you're an attractive person, you have a good personality, if you're selected for bullying, whatever confidence you had prior to that is evaporated unless you're so sure of oneself and you can overcome that 90% of the time people are going to fall victim to the, to the the consensus of everyone around them. That's usually what happens. And so that's a traumatic experience. And then thereafter, we don't know. Like you said, when you move to heroin, you're suppressing something. Uh, People that utilize strong opiates uh, or strong or other medications are just, they're they're trying not to cope with some kind of reality and they're utilizing something to self-medicate. Right, exactly. And yeah, I think it's interesting. And this is just my, you know, I sit and think about, you know, what happened as much as anybody else. And it, I think it's interesting that his sisters work in the field that they do. Um, and that, you know, Koberger, it seems like he had posted... Um, something on Reddit asking people as part of his uh, PhD program, I think it was either the PhD or the master's um, asking people who had been uh, incarcerated, you know, before you like killed somebody or attacked somebody, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? Um, So it seems like, you know, uh, the sisters are working with people who have these problems and it, it seems like he's really exploring like, Julia's ran into some uh, technical difficulties uh, to find her. I will have her blog in description for people to find. For those of you listening, we're going to say good day, good evening, good night, whatever it is for you. 